And Abraham Lincoln once said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. That if you truly know and understand someone, it is impossible to hate them. And I think through our tours, where you get to know and understand real immigrant families, I think at the end of that tour, it is impossible to hate them. This is the Behind the Scenes at the Museum podcast. Episode 7, The Tenement Museum. It's an autumnal morning in New York. Um, I'm on the Lower East Side and I've just walked through Chinatown with its fresh fruit and fish for sale on the street. People are rushing to work. I'm here to visit the Tenement Museum, which has a focus of urban immigrant history. Uh, My name is Kevin Jennings. I'm president of the Tenement Museum. Yes, we're in 97 Orchard Street, which is the original building of the Tenement Museum. A tenement is simply a word for a multi-family dwelling. This building was particular was built in 1863 Mm -hmm. as housing for working class immigrant families that were pouring into New York at that time. Primarily in this neighborhood, German with a smattering of Irish as well. A little known fact that in 1860s, New York was actually the third largest German-speaking city in the world after Berlin and Vienna. This neighborhood was known as Klein Deutschland or Little Germany because it was so overwhelmingly German and so German-speaking. I mean, it's amazing to think what it must have been like because it's pretty busy now. I'll show you a picture. Okay. Um, which will blow your mind of what this street looked like in eight, 1907. Um, the um, neighborhood was about twice as full as it is now in the mm-hmm. heyday of the neighborhood. It's relatively empty compared yes. to what it would have been like <laughs> yeah. in, in the uh, peak time period. Let me see if I can find the photograph I want to show you. Is this the one I want? I think it is. This is the oh, street wow. in the Oh wow, that's incredible. Look at that. That is Orchard Street um, in approximately it's what you're, 1898. Yeah, and everybody's dressed up in their hats. Yeah. <laughs> But it that, looks bigger, actually, I guess yeah. because there's so many people there. But that gives you a sense of yeah. what... Um, so what, do, what languages do we have? We uh, have? Primarily Yiddish at this time I period. I see, yes, of course. Um, because at, by the turn of 1900, this was primarily a Jewish neighborhood. It's transitioned from being German to being Jewish. Mm-hmm. Then there's a big influx of Italians starting about 1910. Mm-hmm. Then about 1945, there's a big influx of, uh, influx of Latinos. Then about 1965, a big influx of Chinese. Right, yeah. So, and then and, about now, about 2000, a big influx of hipsters. Yes, um, yes. So you get, you it's get no your, longer an immigrant neighborhood. No, it's, we it's quite, too, hey, Kenny. It's too expensive. Uh, we're standing right now in the entranceway of the building. The building was occupied from 1863 until the 1930s when it was condemned for residential use, and then it was abandoned for 50 years. So nobody lived. No one lived in the building from the 1930s to the 1980s when our founders, Ruth Abram and Anita Jacobson, found the building. They had hoped to create a museum that would show people how immigrants lived when they first came to America. And they literally um, were looking at an office space on the ground floor of the building, asked to use the bathroom, came upstairs and found an abandoned tenement building. And when you walk into the entrance hallway where we're standing right now, you see what they saw in 1988 a completely unrestored 
hallway uh, that appeared much as it would have appeared to the immigrants who lived here in the 1800s. So it's very dark, stark brown. It's very dark. Uh, the, uh, the walls are covered uh, with treated burlap. Um, at, in fancier homes in the 1800s, they would have been covered with leather. Um, this being a working class home is covered with burlap that was treated to appear as if it was leather. So is that to protect it? It looks pretty tough. It was very durable, but also was the fashion of the time. Okay. Um, and the ceiling is tin, um, and uh, there would have been, in 1863, no indoor lighting. Today we have electric lighting. There would have been no indoor lighting of any time, type. There would have been very, very dark so in candles, the 1860s. people would have had. Or kerosene lanterns. Right. Um, and you would have been entering a very, very dark space. Yes. Um, there Even also so, were, there's decoration, isn't there? The, yes, the there were paintings. Um, the tin roof is decorative. There are small uh, paintings uh, on the sides of the entryway. We've restored one so you get some sense of what it would have looked like back in the 1860s. They're yeah. bucolic scenes to kind of, I think, remind people of... Um, rural life, uh, which this definitely was not. Yes. Uh, in 1900, the Lower East Side of Manhattan in New York City was the most densely populated neighborhood in the world. Right. More than London, more than Beijing, right. more than Mumbai, more than any other place in the world. This was the promised land for immigrants. You pretty much got off the boat at Ellis Island and you came to the Lower East Side and made your life here. So how far is Ellis Island from here? It's very, uh, less than pretty close, so you could pretty much walk it. You could pretty much walk here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's walk so up. So let's walk up. Yeah. So the hero of our story is the staircase we're walking up right now, which is wooden. In the 1930s, uh, new laws were passed requiring fireproof internal staircases to allow people to escape in the case of a fire. Uh, the landlord of this building at that time deemed that it was not uh, economically worthwhile to install such a fire escape. And so what he decided to do was simply condemn the building and not have it used for inhabitation anymore. So the reality is this staircase, which is the same staircase that was built in 1863, right. is we can the touch it. we can touch it, uh, literally. It's in good condition um, still. We estimate that about 7,000 people lived in this building between 1863 and the 1930s. And then about 3 million visitors have visited the building since it was opened as a museum in 1988. So literally over 3 million people have touched the staircase since it was constructed in 1863. Uh, and it's still standing, um, and it is the hero. It is the reason why the building was preserved and not demolished and modernized. And when you come on a tour of the museum, what you do is you're taken into an apartment that's been restored to what it would have looked like at the time that a specific family lived in that apartment. And you learn the life of that family um, and what the conditions were like for them when they immigrated to America beginning with an Irish family that lived in the building in the 1860s called the Moors, and concluding in our second building, 103 Orchard, with a Chinese family that immigrated to America in the 1960s called the Wongs. So we cover over 100 years of history at several different t periods of immigration and several different ethnicities. The apartment we're entering right now is an apartment of a German-Jewish family that lived here in the 1870s. Uh, it's a fascinating story. Uh, Natalie Gumperts ended up being a single mother after her husband, Julius, abandoned the family in 1873 during what at that time was the largest depression in American right. history. And she was left with the job of raising four children. So um, he, he abandoned them because he couldn't keep them? He couldn't. Um, we, we're conjecturing, but yeah. literally he went to work one day in 1873 during the, what was called the Panic of 1873 
which was the largest depression at that time until the Great Depression of 1829, and he simply never came home. Um, our conjecture is he simply couldn't handle it, yeah. but we have no way of knowing. Natalie, uh, who was a German-Jewish immigrant, um, was suddenly faced with having to take care of four children on her own. Um, and She was able to stay here. She was able to stay here. Uh, rents at that time would have been between 8 and $12 a month mm -hmm. um, to live in this building in the early 1870s. So where, where um, would she get that money from? Uh, she went to work. Um, and like many people in this time period, she worked in the uh, garment industry as a seamstress. Okay, so we've got on the table here, we've got scissors and yes. thread and a sewing machine. But um, if we go into the Baldizi family apartment... Just as we do, do we know what happened to Natalie's husband? We actually do. It turned out uh, we didn't for many, many years. We just, he just disappeared. And then through some additional research, we found out that he had moved to Ohio, oh. where he continued to live for several decades. Um, but there's a delightful ending to the story. Natalie gets the last laugh on Julius. Um, Julius's parents die back in Germany, and they leave a large inheritance. But since they can't find Julius, who's deliberately disappeared, it goes to Natalie. So Natalie goes from being this struggling single mother with four children to being able to move to the Upper East Side, which is oh. a very affluent neighborhood, and getting a very nice apartment with her husband's inheritance. So if Julius had just stuck around, uh, he <laughs> it would have come good. Right, but um, you know, it turned out that Natalie got the last laugh because she got her husband's inheritance, and so she got to move to a very affluent neighborhood. He stayed in Ohio. This is the Baldizi family apartment. They were Italian immigrants who moved into the building in the 1920s. Okay, so it's um, a bit later, yeah. Right, so th by that time period, in 1905, the city changed the law so that uh, tenement buildings had to have indoor plumbing and indoor lighting. So, so beforehand they wouldn't have had a sink or a toilet? No, uh, there were four privies in the back uh, and one water pump, and you would have had to go outside to get your water and bring it into your right. your apartment. And, um, and you would have had to go outside and use the privy um, when you had that need. So by the time the Baldizis move in, um, there is indoor lighting, there is a toilet in the hallway, there are sinks with running water. Um, it's not luxurious because there's still no um, way to take a shower or a bath in the building. You still mm. have to go to public mm. facilities to do that but it's much nicer than when the Gumperts lived here when there would have been no indoor lighting and no indoor plumbing. Yeah, and a bit of bit more privacy. Right, the Baldizis are an interesting story though because Adolfo Baldizi comes here first in the early 1920s. Um, but they get caught up in one of the first major immigration laws in American history, the 1924 oh. National Origins Act. Uh, there was a great panic about immigration in America in the early 1920s. Um, and there was a tremendous concern that the flood of people coming from Southern and Eastern Europe was polluting um, the racial purity of America. Right. I see. So it got caught up in the politics of the time. Right. More that than the, the numbers? Um, well, the, there was a law passed, 1924, called the National Origins Act, which was deliberately designed to limit the number of people coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. Now, this created a huge problem for the Baldizi family because Adolfo was already in America, but his wife Rosario was still back in Italy. Right. And now, due to the incredibly strict quota limiting the number of people coming from Italy, Rosario was unable to come here legally. 
Right, so the fact so, that they were together, they were married? Right, it and did it not matter. I see. Um, so Rosaria ended up coming here without proper documentation, as she lived in America for 20 years without proper documentation. Right. How did so, she do that? Just She got uh, she on a boat? She had a forged passport. She had a forged passport. Oh. Um, so Rosaria lived in hiding for two decades until, thanks to a special clause that was passed during World War II, she was able to finally legalize her status. So she must be pretty representative of yes. people coming then and working and living without official documentation. Exactly. And people think of um, what's going on nowadays with so-called illegal immigration as a modern phenomenon, but actually it dates back to the 1920s. Right. And another thing that often people tell us on our tours, um, which is very frustrating for us and we have to correct it a great deal, is people say, well, my grandma came here legally and people today should come here legally. Before 1924, with the exception of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which I'll discuss in a moment, mm -hmm. there essentially were no immigration laws in America. You came here on a boat, you got off the boat, and you walked off the boat. That yeah. was it. Give me your poor... Right. Yeah. It wasn't until 1924 in the National Origins Act that papers were required for non-Chinese people to enter America. Now, the exception I was mentioning was the so-called 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm -hmm. There was tremendous racism against Chinese immigrants in the 19th century and tremendous fear of the Chinese, quote, stealing American jobs, unquote. So in 1882, the first major immigration law in American history was passed, and it was specifically to exclude Chinese people from entering the country. So the first um, restrictions were on Chinese people. Exactly. People. And was there a basis for that, or what would ha why then? I'd love to give it um, a prettier explanation, yeah. but the reality is, if you look at the cartoons, and you look at the speeches, and you look at the uh, legislative history, it was naked racism. Mm -hmm. um, there was a tremendous uh, animus towards the Chinese, uh, who had come in and the, on the West Coast primarily, to work during the gold rush and during the building of the transcontinental railroads. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were extremely good laborers and there was tremendous fear that they were stealing jobs and people simply didn't want them around. What brought you to the Tenement Museum to work here? I'm disgusted by the way our nation talks about and treats immigrants today. It is the lowest point I think I've seen my nation sink to during my 56 years I've been alive. Immigrants help create and build this country. And to see us putting children in cages makes me ashamed to be an American. Was there a turning point for you? There was a incident during the 2016 election when some high school students at a school out west, which was largely white, were playing a basketball game against a high school student that was largely Latino, and the white students started chanting at the Latino students, build the wall, build the wall, build the wall. And I thought, we can't raise a generation that thinks that's acceptable. And what we do here at the Tenement Museum every day is educate people about how immigrants help build this country. And I think that if young people understood the incredible contributions that immigrants have made to this country, they wouldn't chant such hateful things.
So you've got an educative, indeed political role here. That's what you're I think playing. we've got an educative role. I think that our real agenda here is to help people understand immigrants as human beings. And I think through our tours, where you get to know and understand real immigrant families, I think at the end of that tour, it is impossible to hate them. And how do your visitors respond to that message? Um, over 90% of our visitors report that they feel much more empathetic towards immigrants after taking our tours. Yeah. So we know it works. Do you think, though, that they are already sympathetic? I mean, the very fact that you're coming to a museum about immigration means that you're probably open towards it? There's some validity to what you're saying, and I definitely think that if you're willing to take the subway to the Lower East Side and come to a place called the Tenement Museum, you may be inclined to be positive towards immigrants. But, you know, I do think that the tours have an impact. Yeah. Um, I know that when I first came here as a visitor 20 years ago, um, I still remember my tour. Uh, 20 years later, yeah. I took the uh, tour of the Moore family. Um, I remember it 20 years later. Uh, it is a very experiential thing, isn't it, walking along? There's something along. about stepping into the building and literally standing in the apartment and thinking, this is where this family stood and cooked and slept and ate and worked 150 years ago. They actually were in this actual space. There's no substitute for that experience. Um, and I think that it has a profound effect. There's a tradition at this so, museum that uh, everybody leads tours from the president on down. Um, why is that? Because we want to always remember the core purpose of this museum. Um, and everybody's committed to that. Um, and I've led groups from people in their 80s to school children. Yeah. Um, and I find the people who are most moved by it are school children, actually, uh, because they have, their eyes are awakened. Mm -hmm. um, in this world of high technology, when they think about having to go out in the back and use an outhouse, they, um, <laughs> boy, do they have a new respect for their great-grandparents. And no iPads on show. Right. <laughs> in fact, we don't allow uh, pictures inside the museum. You have to put your phone away. Um, so people concentrate. So people actually pay attention to what they're seeing. Yeah. And do you have difficulty, I mean, there are only so many visitors that come, come here. How do you tackle that? We now have built an on-site studio uh, and we're using green screen technology to enable people to visit the museum without ever actually stepping foot in the museum. We are developing things like podcasts to educate people who never come here. Our obsession is how do we reach people who never come to New York City? Yeah. Because I think, as you were pointing out earlier, if you're willing to come to the museum, you may already be on our side. Mm -hmm. We're obsessed with how do we reach people who never come here? And that is our mission for the next decade, is reaching people who never come here. So you said, on our side. What about people who aren't on your side? Well, I think that if they understood immigrants as human beings, they would switch to being on our side pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, that this, in the end, should be a human issue, not a political issue. Um, on our podcast, the very first episode, we tell the story of a young woman who is undocumented, and she's brought here as a child by her family. And she asks her father, like, why he did this. Um, and he says something I think every parent can relate to. He said, I would cross a million borders for you. And I think anybody who has a kid can relate to that feeling. It's like for your kid, screw borders. Mm -hmm. You're going to do whatever you need to do to get your kid a better life. 
And if that involves crossing a border, you're going to do it. Um, and I think that that's where we need to start reaching people is on that human level. Mm. Uh, and we need to get away from all the rhetoric and all the politics and remind people, we're talking about human beings here who want something basic. They want a better life for their kids, just like you do, just like I do. Um, and if we can get back to that level, I think we can find some common ground again and we can heal some of the division that's tearing our country apart. Let's just talk about that division a little bit. Are there any dangers with, ha with dealing with such a political issue in such an emotional way? Are there any downsides to operate the way you do with immigration on the front page? Or what are the tensions that you experience here with that? We have had occasionally people say, you're pushing an agenda and walk out of our doors. Mm -hmm. That has happened, I'm not gonna lie. Um, But I'm moved by the words of Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor and Nobel Prize laureate, who once said, we must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Um, as a museum that was created to humanize immigration, as a museum that is dedicated to telling the stories of immigrants, we can't be neutral right now. Um, we must stand with immigrants. And if that angers some people, I'm sorry. And am I right in thinking you're a historian by training? Yes. Uh, my very first job was at a history museum in Boston, the Paul Revere House, when I was a freshman in college. And I studied history in university. Which leads me on to my next question, which is what do you think history can and should be for? It's a big question, but I'm sure you'll have thought about it. Um, there was a term developed about a hundred years ago by an American historian which talked about we need a usable past. And by what he meant by a usable past was a past that uh, we could use to figure out how to move into our future. Mm -hmm. um, and um, a darker version of that was by the British writer Orwell who said those who control the pe present control the past. Those who control the past control the future. Uh, so the version of the past we learn shapes the vision of the future we can imagine. So part of what I think is critical is that we have a version of the past in which we understand the contributions of immigrants, because if we understand those contributions, we can envision a future in which immigrants continue to be an essential part of our nation. Um, if we erase the contributions of immigrants, mm -hmm. then we are not gonna have a future in which we envision immigrants as a critical part of our nation. Is there a danger of researching the past with that agenda? Well, well I don't think it's um, researching the past with that agenda. I think that simply is the truth. Um, I mean, if you look at the very foods that Americans eat, um, the foods that Americans think of as American foods, hamburgers, hot dogs, apple pie, those all came with the German immigrants yeah, who right lived first. in this building <laughs> yeah. in, um, in the 1860s. Uh, so it's simply the facts. Um, I don't think you have to have an agenda to discover the facts. The facts of America are is that this is a nation that was created in large part by immigrants. And when people on your tours are occasionally uncomfortable or think it is too political, how do you handle that as a museum? We try to create space for them to voice their discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't believe in browbeating people. Um, we believe in dialogue. We're a dialogic museum. 
um, and we encourage people to voice whatever their discomfort is uh, and create a space for them to um, explain what they're feeling. That's why we begin every tour by asking people who they are and where they're from and to tell us a little bit of their story because we want this to be an exchange. We're now in 103 Orchard. This is our second tenement building, which was built in the 1880s. Uh, it was occupied until 2011. So through this building, we're able to tell an even broader array of immigrant stories, including post-war immigration. These apartments, compared to 97 Orchard Street, were quite luxurious. There yeah. were two bedrooms, a dining room, a kitchen, and a parlor. So the, the, the houses we were in, you could only go one direction. Yes, they so were what we call railroad flats. Railroad, you went, yeah, you, so you right had to through. walk through one room to get to the other to get to the other. We're currently standing in an apartment that was the home to the Epstein family. The Epstein family were a Jewish family that came to America in 1947. The patriarchs of the family, the parents, Kalman and Rivka Epstein, were Holocaust survivors. Kalman had survived Auschwitz, where he lost his wife and his son. Uh, Rivka had survived Theresienstadt, where she lost her husband and multiple members of her extended family. After the war, they had it met in a displaced persons camp in what was then West Germany, and they had married. Thanks to an executive order by President Truman, now you have to remember that at that time the 1924 National Origins Act was in effect, mm -hmm. and Kalman and Rivka, because they were from Poland, were unable to enter America because the quota on Polish immigrants was very low. Mm -hmm. But President Truman signed an executive order granting special status to refugees from World War II and giving them priority to enter America. So Kalman had an uncle who had immigrated to America before World War II, and he wrote to his uncle, he said, would you sponsor me and my new wife to come to America? The uncle lived on the Lower East Side and operated a dress shop on Orchard Street. Oh. And the uncle said, of course. So the uncle sponsored his nephew and his new, nephew's new wife, and with the aid of a group called HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, they were able to immigrate to America in 1947 and begin a new life here at 103 Orchard Street. So that's how the Epstein family came to live in America. Um, they uh, had a daughter, Bella, in 1948, and it was really Bella who helped us create this exhibit. Bella is now 71 years old. She is a retired nurse who lives in Florida and it was she who told us many of the stories that helped create this exhibit. Ironically, this exhibit was harder to create than the exhibits in 97 Orchard Street, our older tenement building. Why is that? Um, because historical records are sealed for many decades. And because this story is more recent origin, for instance, census records are sealed for 72 years. 72 years. Uh, which is considered to be the lifespan of somebody. Of yeah, I see. So we're not able to access census records for people who lived in, say, 1960, whereas we're able to access census records for people who lived in 1860. So we really had to rely on the survivors of the families who lived in the building at 103 Orchard to help us recreate the um, stories of the people who lived in this building. And what was interesting about the Epstein family um, being Holocaust survivors is Bella Epstein told us that they did not like to talk about the Holocaust. It was too close. It was too painful and it was not something they cared to remember or chat about with their children. They were very forward-looking. They wanted to create a new life for their family here in America. Yeah. I see. So we're walking through Bella's memories. Yes, we're walking through Bella's memories, uh, beginning here in the hallway. Um, 
And uh, we go into Bella's bedroom here, which she shared so with her. So this is her actual bedroom. This is her actual bedroom, which we recreated through her memories and through pictures. Um, the bedroom she grew up in in the 1950s. Um, and it was a nerve-wracking uh, moment when we brought Bella back to see the apartment because we were, you know, what if we got it wrong? Um, it could be quite a traumatic experience. Try, and also we didn't know how she would react. Um, yeah. And we realized that um, we must have gotten it right when Bella came over to the air shaft and oh. opened the curtain and said down the, yelled down the air shaft, Rosetta! Rosetta De Benedetto had been her best friend when she was a small child in this building in the 1950s. And she remembered yelling down the air shaft to Rosetta when she wanted Rosetta to come up and play with her. And when Bella yelled down the air shaft to Rosetta, we realized that we must have gotten it right because yeah, it reminded yeah. her enough of her childhood home that she reenacted what she had done as a child. It does show you the power of objects, doesn't yes. it? To locate your, not only your memory, but history. So we could have had this conversation without walking through here, but it wouldn't have been the same at all. In this way, I can entirely visualize Bella and Rosetta and what it must have been like to a degree. And this tour is called Under One Roof, and part of what we call it Under One Roof is that a variety of ethnicities shared this building. Yeah. Um, there were Italian families like the De Benedettos, there were Jewish families like the Epsteins. Beginning in the 50s, there were Puerto Rican families like the family that um, we tell on this tour, the Saez Velez family. Beginning in the 1960s, there was the Wong family who moved into the building. And these people all lived, um, I'm not going to say in harmony, because obviously there are always issues, but they managed to coexist in one building. Yeah. Um, and that's a very hopeful story, which yeah. we, um, we think is a story that needs to be told in our country right now, given how divided it is. Um, and one of the reasons we kept the air shafts in the building was uh, the people who lived in the building told us the air shafts served two functions. One was they could hear the different languages. That must have been amazing. Uh, they would hear yeah. Yiddish, they'd hear Italian, they'd hear Spanish, they'd hear Chinese, they'd hear yeah. English. And secondly, um, they would smell the different cuisines. Yes, uh, they would and it's a hot city. <laughs> right, they would smell pasta sauce, they would smell Chinese cooking, they would smell all kinds of different cuisines coming up the air shaft. And in a lot of ways, the multicultural nature of the building came up through the air shaft. Amazing. You're listening to Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins, and I'm talking to Kevin Jennings, president of the Tenement Museum in New York. If you've listened this far, you'll probably like some of the other episodes we've made. They've taken Who Owns Culture with the director of the V&A, Decolonization with the director of the Africa Museum in Brussels, and the Renaissance Nude with the brilliant scholar Jill Burke. So please do have a browse and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Now, back to the podcast, and we're in the apartment of the Wong family. Now, Mrs. Wong um, doesn't come to America until 1965. She's unable to come to America because her husband's an American citizen, but she is Chinese. And as you recall, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act forbids the immigration of Chinese people to America. So she um, is not able to come to America until uh, the passage of the Hart-Celler Act of 1965. The Hart-Celler Act is a monumental piece of legislation in American history. It does two things. Mm -hmm. It repeals the 1924 National Origins Act and abolishes quotas and it repeals the Chinese Exclusion Act. Right. So it really opens the door for people to enter America again for the first time in nearly 100 years. And who passes it and why? It was President Johnson. 
President Kennedy had been a big advocate of immigration reform. And after his assassination, President Johnson took up the mantle of that. Um, and just like the Civil Rights Act was passed in large part in memory of President Kennedy, the Hart-Celler Act was passed in large part in memory of President Kennedy. Um, and thanks to the um, passage of Hart-Celler, uh, America opens the doors to immigrants again for the first time in decades. Um, Mrs. Wong is able to come to America to be reunited with her husband. Um, and she has uh, four children, three daughters and a boy. Uh, they grew up here. Mrs. Wong goes to work in the garment industry, as is typical for people coming to the Lower East Side. She raises her three daughters and her son here on the Lower East Side. Uh, they all go to uh, what are called competitive high schools in New York City, which are high schools you have to take an exam to enter. Mm -hmm. They go on to university. The oldest daughter goes to Yale University, which is one of our most prestigious universities in America. So in many ways, they're an American dream story. Yeah. So. I'm going to play you a video and I'm going to read the subtitles to you. It's Mrs. Wong talking about what, how she got her citizenship in America. It's a very moving story to me because it symbolizes the sacrifices that so many immigrants made uh, to be part of America. So I was really happy. I passed my citizenship test. After I got my citizenship test, I applied to sponsor my little brother here. When I went to get fingerprinted, my oldest daughter came with me to the 7th precinct to get fingerprinted. When we got there, they told me to print, I don't know which. They printed this finger and this one. He asked, what does your mother do? My oldest daughter told the person, the person in charge of fingerprinting me, my mom is a garment worker. He said, your mother's fingers no longer have prints. Then the, the person taking my fingerprints laughed. Your mom has done a lot of work, he said. Her fingers no longer have prints. In the end, he tried printing other fingers, fingers that I haven't used as much. I always close my tours by showing that video and I invariably end up choking up when I show it because I think about the incredible sacrifices our immigrant forebearers made to come here, leaving behind everything and everyone they ever known in hopes that they could create a better life for themselves and their children in this very foreign place where Odds are they didn't even speak the language. Odds are they probably didn't know anyone. And of course I choke up. That's, that's the story of our nation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins. If you'd like to see photographs of all the families we discussed, the Gomperts, the Baldeses, the Epsteins and the Wongs, as well as their apartments and the street that they lived on, take a look at our Instagram and Twitter feed, at Behind the Museum. And don't miss any future episodes by subscribing, wherever you get your podcasts, to Behind the Scenes at the Museum. Behind the Scenes at the Museum was written and presented by Tiffany Jenkins. The producer was Jack Fillimore.